The history. Tell me what you saw. The people. Hey, neighbor. The legends. I bring good news. The actions. If you build it, he will come. The vision and evolution of Southern California's desert cities. Boy, I got vision and the rest of the world wears bifocals. From mid-century. We're halfway there. To modern day. I'm building something. These are the stories of how the greater Palm Springs region has become America's playground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do this. iHub Radio presents Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. Welcome to the Coachella Valley Chronicles. I am Randy Florence, and we have another episode here with one of the people who helped to shape the desert to what it is today. My guest today is Lisa Bossler-Smith. Lisa is the Executive Director of Modernism Week, one of the spotlight events held each year in the desert. She attended Indio High and grew up in La Quinta. After graduating from UC Irvine, Lisa pursued a career in event management, which eventually brought her back to the desert. I'd like to introduce everybody to Lisa Bossler-Smith. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Randy. Hi, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for being here. Uh, Besides having you here um, and finding out a little bit more about you, it's just given me more of a chance to really dive in and look at the history of Modernism Week, too. So I'm really excited about this. Oh, great. Thank you. Well, I'm really glad to be here, and I'm, I'm honored to be invited. Well, thank you. As you know, one of the things that we like to do, too, is kind of talk about the guests themselves and what motivated them to... uh, become the people that they became, where their influences were. And so I want to kind of step back a little bit before you became the director of Modernism Week. You originally came to the desert at about the age of 10. Is that right? Yes. And where was that from? I moved here with my mom, Judy Vossler. In 1980, I was 10, and we moved here from Norman, Oklahoma. <laughs> and uh, I had been I was born in Oklahoma City and my early childhood was there and and um I was a desert transplant. Do you wear anything other than uh orange? <laughs> well, <laughs> see I was a sooner because Oh, from, so you didn't wear orange. Norman, right. No, we're red and white. <laughs> That's right. So, yes, you know, it was funny. I I was such a football fan as a kid because I lived in in, you know, a college town where University of Oklahoma was. My mom went to Oklahoma State and she did wear orange. That's so, right. you know, you you got that right. But uh we had rival teams and when I moved here at 10 years old and there was no football team, I just thought this was the craziest place, you know, and it looked like Mars, and it was just such, you know, a different landscape. And here I had um, come from my family in Oklahoma City, and I, I thought I was a city girl. And so I'd moved to the desert, and it just seemed like the middle of nowhere. I thought my mom was crazy. <laughs> I can imagine that. So talk to me about that a little bit. I mean, uh, do you recall how you felt coming from Oklahoma to the desert? Was it a, was it a happy time for you? It was a happy time. I mean, I was a happy kid. And, you know, at 10, you're happy to be in a swimming pool, right? (laughs) You know, that's the best. And I had been here before. We had been visiting since I was about three years old, Mm. because my grandparents were here. As you know, my, my grandfather, who was a 
and a PGA Tour player had become a golf course developer over the years, and he was here in the desert um, building golf courses, and that's ultimately why Mom and I moved here from Oklahoma mm. to be closer to them and, you know, so that she could join the family business and work with them. And so uh, I had been coming out, and I knew this was a, a, a beautiful resort town. I mean, I as a kid, I just thought that it was all uh, swimming pools and movie stars. It really seemed that way to me because we were in La Quinta, which was kind of a far off place, you know, <laughs> at the time and um, nestled in up against the mountains and, you know, with all of the fruit trees and the palm trees, that was very exotic coming from Oklahoma. You know, there was fruit on the trees, which I just, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't imagine. So I, I do remember all of those wonderful things about visiting my grandparents here and spending a lot of time in their swimming pool. Mm. And so, you know, when we moved here, when I was a little bit older, at least I was already familiar with La Quinta. Sure. Do, do you recall as, as a 10-year-old your, your first 120-degree summer? <laughs> I remember thinking it was really hot, you know, and as a kid, you, you know, when it's that hot, you stay inside in the air conditioning, right? right? It's so hot, no one's even in the pool, you know, and even at night, it barely dips below 100. So um, I do remember thinking it was really hot, <laughs> but it never seemed quite as bad to me as that Oklahoma humidity, because when it's 95 there and humid, it's really miserable. Mm. And so, you know, growing up here, it was still a very dry desert climate. It seems like we have more humidity now, you know, but um, as a kid, it was, you know, totally arid. Yeah. So it just was, a, you know, another good excuse to to stay in the swimming pool. <laughs> You've talked a lot in some of the uh, interviews that I've read with you about the influence of your, your mom and dad. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and what you think you got from them and what you see in yourself today? Oh, sure. Well, you know, my my mom raised me here as a single mom, and I have the utmost respect for her and, you know, love and admiration and adoration because we're, we're best friends. We grew up together, basically. You know, she was a young single mom. And so um, I, I really credit her with um, being a good disciplinarian and really, you know, helping me have priorities, even as a young person, you know, I, I was college minded and excited to, to learn and to go to school. And so, you know, I felt like even when we moved to California, I could feel that there would be different and possibly better opportunities for me here. Little did I know, you know, I'd have the whole world, uh, you know, at my fingertips from Southern California, um, as opposed to growing up in Oklahoma. No discredit to my friends and family in Oklahoma, but, you know, it was really um, quite an opportunity that my parents gave me by, by you know, moving me to California and, and everything that I got exposed to that... Mom and I often laugh, you know, two young girls from Oklahoma would have never seen the things we saw <laughs> at La Quinta, you know, just just being in, in this desert environment, you know, special magical things happen. 
and it's a you know it's a it's a special place out here. So my father, I he he still lives in Texas. He stayed in Oklahoma. My parents divorced, and Dad and I stayed close. And fortunately, my parents were always friends, so that made it um, a nice you know environment for me growing up. And I still spent my summers going back to Oklahoma to spend time with my dad and his family, who I'm still very close to. And my my grandparents lived uh, late into their life there in Oklahoma. And so that's always been a part of my upbringing. But my grandparents out here were also from Texas and Oklahoma. So our whole family came from there. And and that will always be our roots. Is there anything that you got from Oklahoma that stays with you today? Oh, my gosh, so much. I mean, I don't notice it as much as the people around me do. I suppose it's sometimes the way I talk, I've been told. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they say words like swim and pool. Right. Pool is a two-syllable word, it turns out. But, you know, not just the way I talk, certainly the way I eat. They don't have chicken fried steak in California, and it took me years to get over that. So uh, my my grandmother instilled in me the love of fried chicken. So I still seek out every fried chicken joint in Southern California that I can because it it just doesn't compare to Oklahoma fried chicken. I can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I still love OU football and um, I'll always be a Sooner fan and, and, you know, they still have a great team. So that's always fun to watch. And because I still have family there, I, you know, I stay in tune with what's going on there. And my husband is an artist and he has a public art sculpture there right in front of City Hall in Oklahoma City. So we always have a reason to go back to visit his artwork as well. Yeah, we'll talk about uh, Philip hopefully before we're done here today. But oh, good. I wanted to ask you also when uh, when you came out at the age of ten, um, had your mom started at the resort yet? I don't think so. When we moved here, La Quinta Resort, um, and and I think what you're referring to is that my grandfather's company had purchased La yes. Quinta Resort. And my mom eventually became the general manager. And that's what I was referring to, yeah. Yeah. And when we first moved, um, there was a general manager there who had been in place for a long time, I believe. So um, it was a few years, I think, until she moved into that position. And I I know that she was assistant GM for a while, and I think even did some sales and things as part of her training, you know, coming up. So it was a much smaller resort then, you know, uh, it's doubled or tripled in size since then. So uh, she kind of had a a training ground, um, really right boots on the ground, you know. Well, presumably you did, too. Uh, As a young child, I assume you spent a lot of time there. (laughs) I did, not only because it's a fantastic environment and I love being at La Quinta Resort, but, you know, you can work for your family when you're young. So I think I was 12 when I was able to start collecting a a paycheck. (laughs) And so I started working. My first job was at the tennis club and I was a a cashier in the pro shop. And they used to put a little booster stool for me under the counter so I could stand up tall enough to look like an adult behind the counter. But I, you know, I had a bunch of jobs at La Quinta while I was growing up. I I served pies at Sunday brunch. Peanut butter pie? Yes, peanut butter pie, my favorite. (laughs) 
And so, uh, you know, I kind of came up through the hospitality chain of jobs. And that's another place that my mom was so smart, you know, by having me go to work young, I I developed such great training and exposure and um, opportunity, really, you know, just just by being able to to work and to have some skills, you know, at a young age and sometimes just by being at the right place at the right time. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Do you do you remember your first um, celebrity sighting at the hotel? Boy, there 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 were so many, yeah. and you know that's if, if there was a chapter of my of my book it, it, about my childhood, it would definitely have to contain some of my you know my favorite celebrity sightings because growing up around the Quinta Resort, I mean they come there to get away, right. you know. And so they're often out on the grounds, walking around, just having a normal life, playing tennis, sitting in the sun, you know, shopping, you know, at the stores and eating at the restaurants. So they come, they came to the resort to, to, to hide away. And so, of course, I had to always curb my enthusiasm, <laughs> you know, and not scream out, there's Harrison Ford. <laughs> you know? Run around with your autograph book. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And of course, when your mom is the boss, no. you know, you really have to behave. So because of that, you know, I, I think one of my first celebrity sightings was definitely Johnny Carson. He's one of my earliest memories of someone who was around La Quinta a lot. And, that's a pretty and good one. Um, yeah, playing tennis and hanging out, you know, with the guys at La Quinta. Well, thank you for sharing those. I I giggled through the entire interview with your mom as she talked about all the different celebrities uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, When we come back, though, I want to talk to the next stage here and the decisions that caused you to leave the desert for a little while. Back on the Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. Let's just call it what it is. Coachella Valley Chronicles continues on iHub Radio. You are the story. Here's Randy Florence. Welcome back with my guest, Lisa Bossler-Smith. So, Lisa, um, after some time at the uh, La Quinta Resort um, and growing up here in the Valley, at, at some point you made the decision to leave the desert to go to college. Was, was that the first time you, you left the desert? Yeah, you know, I, as soon as I realized that there was a beach nearby (laughs) that wasn't just (laughs) sand (laughs) and that you could go to college and live near the beach and it was only two hours away from you know home that sounded pretty good after a couple of those 120 degree summers we talked about so um yes you know i was driven also by the academics because at the time i was pursuing um a 
a degree in urban planning. And there were only so many schools in Southern California, you know, that offered that. And I had taken some architecture classes in high school and was very interested in architecture and design and planning. And because my family was in development, I figured I would go get a degree in planning and be able, you know, to come back and either work with family business or somehow something associated with, you know, development and and our family's business. And so I went to UC Irvine and I had the great opportunity to live in those beach cities over there that are so beautiful, Balboa Island and Corona Del Mar and Laguna and Newport. It was such a wonderful time in my life to to go to school and and live at the beach and still be able to come home to the desert, you know, and stay at La Quinta on spring break. Like that was really, really great. (laughs) I bet that was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, now that I say it, that was really the life of Riley at that time. (laughs) So you started school in Irvine. Where'd you go from there? Yes, I went to UC Irvine, got a fantastic education there, wonderful work opportunities and experience working for planning firms in Orange County. And at that time, you know, this was late 80s, early 90s, there was lots of master plan development going on in Orange County. And it was um, at a much more rapid growth pace than what was happening here in the desert. And so it was really um, like a crash course on development and city process and, uh, you know, what architects and developers do to, to work together. And so I came out of Irvine feeling like I had, you know, wonderful training. And, um, of course, that was right as there was a terrible recession. Mm-hmm. And you might remember in 1993, there was a horrible well. real estate, yeah, mm-hmm. terrible real estate and banking crash. It basically bankrupted my family's business and all of our, you know, um, projects and developments and everything were on hold. And so I came out of college without a very clear career path. And that's, you know, I, I can relate to what kids are going through right now because you've worked so hard to get there. You got through school, you did a great job and you get out of school and everything's on hold. There's Your no industry job. might even be gone. Yeah, Yeah, right. Your industry might even be gone. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, after school, um, I I threw a a wild series of events that you don't even have time to hear today. (laughs) I ended up falling in love. Imagine that. And I got married as a young person, and I married a a man who had, had known my family for years and years, and he was from New Orleans, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And so... We, during this recession, I didn't have a job. His job was changing. We packed up from Laguna Beach and moved to New Orleans to be closer to his family. So here I was, a 23-year-old female urban planner (laughs) with no job. Born in Oklahoma. (laughs) Born in Oklahoma, raised in the California desert, moving to New Orleans, you know. And so uh, that's an entirely different chapter, but it is, you know, it it is one of those terrific miracles and blessings in my life because it changed my life and added 
uh, a sense of culture and um, joie de vivre that I may have mm. never attained had I stayed in the desert my whole life. But I, I loved living in New Orleans, and sadly, the marriage didn't work out. But my career took a totally different turn, and that is a, another part of the story. If you're ready for well, me to I'm go, I'm ready. There. Go ahead. <laughs> so. Uh, everyone that I knew in New Orleans was in hospitality, and it was very much like the environment that I grew up in in, in La Quinta because with mom in the resort business, and over time, La Quinta Resort had become a major convention hotel. Uh, it's a destination resort, and so they did huge events and weddings and VIP parties and things that go on down in New Orleans on a daily basis. They have so much convention business and travel business and they're basically producing Mardi Gras all year long mm-hmm. because there's private groups, you know, coming in for it throughout the year. And so I knew a group of terrific women there um, through my ex-husband who basically took me under under their wing and they taught me everything they knew about event management and convention sales and hotel sales, hospitality, transportation, destination management. I mean, it was really an incredible seven years of working in a very high-volume, fast-paced event industry. And I'm so lucky to have been there. Again, right place at the right time. Absolutely. That sounds like an amazing time. And for us in the Valley, we're glad you were there because I think that's what led you to do the things you've done since you got back here. Thank you. We'll talk about Modernism Week when we come back from the break. You're with the Coachella Valley Chronicles and my guest, Lisa Bossler-Smith. From the Gene Autry Trail to the Empire Polo Grounds. Have you seen it? Like desert sands through an hourglass. With great power comes great responsibility. These are the Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence on iHub Radio. Cool. Here's Randy. Welcome back with my guest, Lisa Bossler-Smith. And Lisa, just before we get into uh, some details around Modernism Week, uh, another story that I was reading recently, and I just wanted to bring it up because I have to imagine it was a pretty special time. In 2016, you shared uh, the Desert Visionary Award with your mom, Judy Bossler, and you two were introduced by your husband. I I just can't imagine anything more uh, special than that. (laughs) You're right. It chokes me up just thinking about it, Mm. but it was such a special honor. And of course, you know, mom was an early prominent businesswoman here in the desert. And by early, I just mean, you know, in the early 80s, there just weren't a lot of females in managerial roles. And so she had a seat at the table in hospitality out here, you know, when when it was still a pretty small community. And um, she has already received such wonderful accolades and awards over the years because of her accomplishments and achievements. So to stand next to her and to be honored with her was really, you know, as you say, almost overwhelming and and such an honor because she taught me everything I know. 
and she is, you know, one of the primary mentors and and uh, reasons that I'm so passionate about living in the desert and and being a businesswoman in the desert because you know she paved the way for me. And I think you obviously know she feels very much the same way about you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. You know, you said uh, in another interview that one of the secrets to a successful event is that you spend a lot of time curating. What did you mean yeah. by that? Yeah. Well, you know, I think of it like a gumbo because this is how <laughs> the ladies in New Orleans taught me. So you get all all of your ingredients together, all of the items that you want to include in your event, and that might be entertainment and decor and flowers and special napkins and custom matchbooks and a headlining entertainer and all of these things, and you throw it all into the gumbo. And if it doesn't taste right, you got to take something out or you got to add more. You've got to change the recipe as you go. So so I think, you know, being able to edit your own work is really important. And to, and to be able to say, everything feels right about this, except this element just doesn't fit. Let's take it out. Because people actually notice these things at an event. You know, the way you feel at a party or at a, a big public affair, you know, if you feel good and happy and upbeat and exciting, it's because of the environment that they've created for you. You know, so through the lighting and the music, and all of the wonderful elements to the event, you can really affect a person's mood. Mm. So I take it pretty seriously. I can imagine. It's, I hadn't <laughs> even thought about it that deeply. I'm going to have to pay more attention. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know when you don't like something, right? Absolutely. So you, it, you, you may not realize why, but sometimes it's just the food or the music. So last year, um, 2020, the Modernism Week, did, did you get it all in just before everything <laughs> shut down? We got in just under the wire, and it was the most magnificent year. It was our 15th anniversary. It was our biggest event. It's, you know, we're an 11-day festival in February. Mm -hmm. And so last year, I think we ended on February 23rd. So it was really just a few weeks before, you know, the first big shutdown. Mm -hmm. And at the time, COVID was not a concern in in the U.S. When, when we were having our event, no one was even talking about it. It didn't impact travelers. And, you know, it seems like maybe it was still in China or possibly, you know, reaching the Pacific Northwest. But it wasn't a factor, which was so amazing that then only a few weeks later, everything changed so dramatically. It was. I was, I was telling the story earlier at, at, during this week, one year ago. Um, I was running the safety committee for the Boys and Girls Clubs of Coachella Valley. And the grand auction was going to be that Saturday. And as you, you know, for them, that's a big fundraiser for them every year. And uh, on Wednesday, we left voting to decide to still have the auction. By noon Thursday, we had all gotten on the phone and completely changed our minds. That's how fast things started happening over that that's couple amazing. of weeks. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I mean, because by the time I was writing thank you letters, we were already kind of staying home. And then when they announced that the tennis tournament yeah. was canceling and then that Coachella was canceling, you know, and all of these things that just sort of were a domino effect after that. And, of course, when you're an event planner, it strikes terror in mm -hmm. your heart, you know, and, and really um, something I would have never predicted that would so impact not only every industry, you know, out here locally, but, you know, 
you think even in bad times, events will continue, yeah, right? You yeah. know, you don't think in pandemic terms. No, although I'm, I'm, I'm hoping as a Valley resident, this is also opening our eyes to some changes that we may need to make in the future uh, so that we can continue to thrive while we're still doing the events. Yeah. So talk to me how quickly after the end of last year's event did you have to start talking about what this year's event was going to look like well it's been such an interesting evolution because it, as you know the the news and the status has changed from mm-hmm. week to week and so you know our group fortunately um has a a really you know, small but mighty, I would say, <laughs> board of directors. We're, we're only an organization of 10 on our board and three staff members and then another uh, 10 or so consultants that work with us. A very but strong moder- board, though, Lisa. Yeah, great yeah. board. Well, and they're very hands-on. So yeah. right away, we kind of rolled up our sleeves and took a look at, you know, what was happening and what could we conceivably do? Because in the spring last year, uh, our event concluded. We had 162,000 attendees, so it was gigantic over an 11-day period. And, you know, all of a sudden, everything came to a screeching halt. Our next event was planned for October and, you know, set to go on sale August 1st. So that August date kept getting closer and closer. And, you know, we, we formed kind of an internal task force to continually you know, research and and measure what was happening and try to determine if we could even have an in-person event in October. And of course, it was determined that we couldn't. And, you know, once things spiked after the 4th of July and, you know, Mm -hmm. we were in another shutdown, we just knew that that fall wasn't going to be conceivable. And then we unfortunately had to make a similar decision about February. You know, we had to decide in November Mm -hmm. what it was going to feel like. And what we determined at that time is that we could safely produce some home tours and self-guided tours and outdoor experiences. We could produce those safely if we moved the event to April. So that's what we've done this year. The event will be April 8th through 18th. And we've been on sale since January 1st. And fortunately, because the pandemic conditions are improving, sales are, are strong and, and, you know, continue to improve. I, I think we'll have a nice, a nice, small and intimate and socially distanced event in April. Well, I think it's interesting. I, in 2020, um, you were lucky enough to get through the event before everything hit. Yeah. And you may be lucky enough to be holding the event just at a time when everybody here is starting to feel like the, the light is shining a little bit a more little better. in the yeah, valley. Just right on the cusp. We did make the pivot to online programming, which is what we did in October and February. We created original custom programming to to bring Modernism Week to the people. Mm. So we did some virtual home tours and some wonderful presentations, and we had some scholars talking about significant architecture and tours of Palm Springs, and all of those programs actually are still available online at modernismweek.com until the middle of March. That's great. So other than the virtual aspect, is there anything else that I would notice different from previous years? 
Well, it's funny because as I talk to our friends and fans around the country, um, they have all kind of picked up on the fact that we're actually doing more this year than we would <laughs> usually be doing because now we have three events instead of two. So, you know, we did have this major online event that went from February 1st to March 15th, and now we're gearing up for the April event, and then presumably I think we'll be back in person on site in Palm Springs in October. So we'll go right from working on the April event to being in in planning mode for the fall. And then I'm really, really keeping my fingers crossed that, you know, we're kind of back to normal, at least as far as um, being able to host cocktail parties and have some more public gatherings and events in, Mm. in February of 22. Be happy just to hug my granddaughter. That would be awesome. Yeah, I know. Me too. <laughs> so we're all going uh, going through the same thing there. Um, dude, would you would uh, let me know um, what we have to look forward to this year, specifically at Modernism? I had to pick one thing that you say, Randy, if you haven't seen it before, you need to see this this year. Well, this year we are approaching our events differently than we usually would. So usually we have such large crowds to accommodate that, you know, we're in larger venues and we're talking about architecture at a at a larger scale with multiple homes and many homeowners involved. This year we're focused on tours of homes that are a single home at a time. And so that way we can not only control capacity and keep it very low, only about 20 people per half hour. So it'll be very low capacity home tours and um, a lot of outdoor experiences, walking tours, a high desert driving tour. Hmm. But if there was a don't miss this year, I would say don't miss the two featured homes in Palm Springs. They're beautiful new remodels of of older mid-century homes, and they're just fabulous. One is called Sunburst Palms, and the other one is a 70s Sackley. And they're so fun. They're an interior designer's dream, and and the homeowners have just been so gracious to let us give tours during April. Hmm. Who were the architects on those two homes? One was by Stan Sackley, and it's 1975, which is a period that we've been starting to look at over the years because a lot of the same mid-century architects were still working into the 70s and 80s, you know. Mm -hmm. So one's a Stan Sackley, and the other one, I believe, is Lawrence Lapham, who's a little lesser known. The house is in Deepwell, which is such a magnificent neighborhood in Palm Springs. And, you know, these are these low roof line, you know, beautiful, long linear lots. Um, just gorgeous older homes in Palm Springs. Yeah, I love those. So let me finish off this segment with a little lightning round thing for you. What's Fun. What's your favorite home that you've done on the uh, Modernism Week? You know, I'm really partial to Frank Sinatra's estate, designed by E. Stuart Williams, 1947. It was one of the very early modernist structures out here. It's still my favorite. Oh. How about the most unusual home? Most unusual is Bob Hope's house up on mm. Southridge, designed by um, John Lautner. It's really like an airport hangar up there, the huge <laughs> shell. You can see the mushroom dome from the street down here. Yeah. We're going to talk about this a little bit more on the last segment, but what's the favorite work of your husband's? Oh, boy, wasn't ready for that one. Favorite work, you know, probably the first time he did Coachella, which I think was 2014, and it was only up for two weeks, so we'll never see it again. That's right. 
All right, we will come back on the next segment, talk a little bit more about Modernism Week and Philip on the Coachella Valley Chronicles. And the where. This is Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. The 411 on the events, the personalities, and the history that have built an oasis in the desert. Here's Randy. Welcome back to the Coachella Valley Chronicles. I'm here with my guest, Lisa Bossler Smith. Lisa, I want to talk for a couple of minutes here about uh, your relationship uh, with uh, your husband, Philip. When did you guys meet? Well, I was so lucky that, you know, when I moved back in 2000, the desert had grown and changed so much. And, you know, it was a, a, a active, vibrant place where young people were moving to from L.A. and Orange County and, you know, kind of all over. And so Philip and I both returned to the desert in 2000, but we didn't know each other. And our moms had been friends for years. And so in a few years after we moved back, our moms actually introduced us, which, you know, when you're dating in your 30s, that's like the kiss of death, right? When your mom says, that, I have a guy I want you to meet. You didn't get the impression that they'd been discussing it all up to that time, did you? <laughs> well, it turns out they'd had a lunch. She had already <laughs> interviewed him. You know, the process had already begun without my blessing. <laughs> So we're not going to start discussing dowries or anything here, are we? Hey, you know what? They were right. I mean, this is the thing. They got it right. So yay for moms. That's exactly right. They knew us kids. They thought we'd be fast friends, and they were right. We instantly became friends and started spending a lot of time together and realized we had so many common interests. And, you know, we fell in love, and we've been best friends ever since. Now that's been almost 20 years. Wow. So, uh, you know, we've been together uh, pretty much the whole time that we moved back to the desert. Yeah. When did you start together? Um partnering up on any philanthropy or anything in the desert? You know, almost right away, because both of our mothers have always been active, you know, in volunteering here in the desert. So Philip and I both had organizations that we were already um, involved with. And so he was actually um, helping to form the Architecture and Design Council at the Palm Springs Art Museum, which was a a young fledgling uh, council at that time in about 2003 or 4. And so he and I got involved with the architecture and design community um, right about that time together. And it was in those early years right before Modernism Week started. Sorry about that. Lost myself okay. for a moment. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you're back. <laughs> yeah, it was not a problem at all. I was thinking about that modernism, uh, the last modernism uh, home that I saw 
and I, I the it must have been the Bob Hope home, and I'm sorry, I want to go back there for just a second. Sure. Can you explain to me again? You mentioned it was kind of like a giant barn. Uh, describe that to me. Well, I think I said like an airplane hanger. Airplane hanger, sorry. <laughs> Describe that to me. It is such a huge volume. You know, the um, the roof line on the Bob Hope estate is that large curved roof yes. that looks like a spaceship. And so truly when you're standing there on the ground, it's about, I want to say, three or four stories tall above you. And it's just one huge volume. And so as you go through the house, you know, most of the interior is concrete. And and so it feels very spacious and open. But when you step outside, it's really that you feel the presence of that overhang and the shell. And it is that sensation of like, you know, that rounded kind of shape when you're in an airplane hangar or an old, you know, Kwanzaa hut kind of structure. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, getting back to Philip real quickly. So you said his first real big thing here in the desert was at Coachella. And I know he's had uh, some history with them. How much involvement has he had with them over the years? Well, the the two art installations he did at Coachella, I think 2014 and 2016, um, both were really wonderful collaborations with them and with their um, with their art director, and um, of course with their um, top guns as well. Um, Paul Tolette and the whole organization is very involved in the art side as well as the music side. So um, it was fortunate that Philip had already been working as a sculptor and and fine artist um, for several years, and he had a few built works even here in the desert, but he was... Um, you know, there's something about the viral nature of, of music festivals, of course, and mm-hmm. social media. So once he had this large mirrored um, sculptural installation at Coachella that appeared, it was there over the two weekends, there were so many thousands of pictures of it, you know, that basically went global because, um, you know, people sharing their photos all around the world. So that piece, that first piece was called Reflection Field. Mm. And then a few years later, he did a piece called Portals. Both of those are are easily found on Google or, um, you know, online. And um, so the two projects at Coachella really propelled him into an international media presence that he had not had previously, you know, as a regional Southern California desert artist. So after Coachella, he had opportunities that came about in Milan and, of course, you know, working in different parts of the United States and on the East Coast as well. And so I think, if nothing else, being being involved at Coachella gave him that international exposure that really helped um, propel his work outside of the Coachella Valley. That's perfect and not surprising at all in today's uh, viral universe. So, listen, in the last minute or so that we've got here, Lisa, somebody who came up and became very successful in this area, things are changing very quickly in the desert. What would you say to the young people in this valley about the opportunities in the future here in the valley? 
Well, thank you, Randy. That's a really nice compliment. And, you know, I think it all depends on how you define success because I'm still working on it. So I'm getting there. But, you know, I think for the young people of the Coachella Valley, this is still such a place of opportunity. And that's why Philip and I stayed and built our businesses here and have, you know, collaborated with other local businesses here. And we really try to lift each other up and, and to buy local and shop local as much as we can. So for the young people in the Coachella Valley, please, you know, get your education wherever that is, even if it's here at our wonderful College of the Desert, and, you know, get as much on-the-job training as you can, because training goes almost just as far as education. you got to have that paper, but, you know, the training is equally important. And, and that's really the investment that I like to make with the people that I hire and that I work with is I want to help train the hospitality workers and, and you know, the, the industry that welcomes our tourists here in the Valley through our work experience at Modernism Week. So we do a lot of training and, and you know, on the job, on the job training as well. Well, thank you. And, and, and as usual, I've got about 50 more cards of questions here that I couldn't get to, Lisa. So I'm hoping we'll be able to do this again in the future. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Randy, it was a pleasure. Always nice talking to you. Thank you, and thank you all for joining us on the Coachella Valley Chronicles. You've been here with Randy Florence on iHub Radio.